Greetings, Earthlings, ocean lovers, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Laird Young, and as we gear up for the holiday season, it's great sharing an episode that's mostly good news. Camille Labchuk is an animal rights lawyer and executive director of the Canadian animal rights advocacy group, Animal Justice. Just before the election, the Canadian government passed major laws that will have an impact on the lives of animals in Canada and around the world. And animal justice helped make those laws happen. We talked about the free willy law, the anti-shark finning law, which may have helped lead to America finally passing their own anti-finning law, animal cruelty, and a wild court case that could determine whether Canadian vegans have the right to eat animal-free meals. I found our conversation challenging, thought-provoking, and seriously fun. I hope you do too. As always, Scanna is brought to you by our heroic podmates who sponsor us through Patreon.com, including Robert Anderson, Susie Venuta, Mike Whitley, Maria, Eagle Wing Tours, Yosef Wask, and I think we're going to declare this episode's extra super special sponsor is my new kids book, Orcas Everywhere, The History and Mystery of Killer Whales. Now, this book features some amazing photos, some amazing paintings, and although it was written so that it could be read by middle school readers, it's really an introduction to orcas around the world for readers of all ages. So, if you're into orcas, if you like the podcast, I think you're going to love this book. Now, we've also had some people help us out who are keen on Scanna, but not on Patreon. So right now, to make it easier for you to help us do what we're doing, if you like what we're doing, please connect with us through our Giving Tuesday account. Our goal is to get some extra money so we can create some Scanna mini-series next year in addition to the regular podcast. But to make that happen, we really do need your help. Now, if you're an American listener and would like to help us out, and get a tax receipt, we found an organization that can help make that happen. But there is a serious setup cost for us, so we need to make sure that this will make sense for you and for us. So if you'd like to explore this, please contact us through Facebook or through our website. Our email address is scanapod at gmail.com. Since everyone knows podcasting is all about the big bucks. I want to let you know what you're helping us pay for are the people and gear we need to record, post, and store these interviews. And if you sign up as a Patreon subscriber now, we've got a special offer just in time for the holidays. For everyone who comes on board at $3 or above, we will share some outtakes from our upcoming documentary about Moby Doll and the past, present, and future of the Southern Resident Orcas. Sign up at $9 or above, and you'll receive a cool digital gift for the holidays. Either my comedy album, Green Pieces, Leah Abramson's Orca album, Songs for a Lost Pod, or an audiobook version of my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. And now, animal rights lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice and co-host of the Paw and Order podcast, Camille Labchuk on Animal Rights and Wrongs. All right. So Camille, it's great to finally meet you. I'm so excited to be talking to you about everything. I can't believe how much is going on right now. 
Oh, there is so much. And finally, for the first time ever, we've, we've seen just tons of things happening for animals. It's exciting. Can you talk about the Free Willy Bill first, how you've been involved and what this all means? Well, the Free Willy Bill is one of the most exciting things that's happened recently for me. Uh, we've been supporting this legislation since it was first introduced by Senator Wilfred Moore in the spring of 2015. And the goal, of course, of the Free Willy Bill is to get whales and dolphins out of captivity. Uh, Canadians just recognize by now that whales and dolphins don't belong in tanks. So many people have seen films like Blackfish. They've seen films like The Cove. And they understand that when you keep whales and dolphins in these tiny confined tanks, they suffer. They can't swim the vast distances that they're used to. They can't dive deeply in search of food. They can't socialize with natural appropriate family groups. So, uh, you know, in the end, the aquariums fought this legislation tooth and nail. And they actually had some pretty powerful senators on their side that helped them delay it for a long time. But it was inevitable that Bill S-203 was going to pass because there was so much support for it from Canadians. Every time it looked like senators would be able to quietly kill it, Canadians actually rose up in such numbers that they crashed the Senate's email server twice by the volume of correspondence sent in to the Senate about this bill. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, so it really shows that the public is so strongly behind this measure. Now, come on, Willie. I know you can do it, boy. I know you can jump this wall. Now, I talked to Elizabeth May several times about this bill as it was going through, and I understand now how this one was delayed, but I'm not quite clear why. Why was this being stalled the way it was? And I'm, I'm going to ask you that about the other bill we're going to talk about as well, because I'm just baffled at what the resistance was and why it was so strong. Well, that's a great question. And I want to make it clear that almost everyone in Parliament did support this legislation. The, the Liberal Party was instrumental, and even the government stood up and, and took some really strong steps to make sure it passed. And the NDP, the Greens, but uh, and many individual Conservatives supported it too. But some Conservative higher up took the position against it. So in particular, Senator Don Plett, he's the conservative Senate whip, and he's a very powerful senator. He can he has a lot of control over the agenda. He can obstruct bills. He can delay them. And for whatever reason, he decided that he didn't want to see whales and dolphins out of tanks, or he maybe more likely he didn't want the animal rights uh, advocates to have any sort of victory under their belt. So he did everything he could to delay it. They, they would bring ridiculous procedural maneuvers to stop the bill from proceeding and slow it down. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Mark, they almost won. This bill almost ran out of time. But uh, thankfully, the government was able to step in at the last minute and, and do some things to make sure it did pass. So it was, a, it was a very long fight, but it was successful in the end. It just blew my mind that it seemed to be that one senator who was determined to kill it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and you know, Elizabeth May ended up filing a lobbying complaint against Marineland. It seems like Marineland had a pretty cozy relationship with that Senator Don Platt. And uh, it, it baffled everybody that he would be so dead set against this bill that he would go to such extreme lengths. But it's actually maybe not so surprising when you think about the other issues he's taken on. He's also been the most vocal opponent of... Uh, changing the national anthem's lyrics to be gender neutral, so being more respectful for women. And he also held up a trans rights bill, which was heartbreaking, and was responsible as well for uh, delaying and ultimately blocking and, and making sure it didn't pass the uh, bill to enshrine into Canadian law the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So I think this is somebody who is not interested in, in expanding rights for marginalized groups. He's gone after Indigenous people, women, 
trans people, and whales and dolphins. What does this law mean and where does it put us globally? Like, where do we stand next to other nations now? It's given Canada a huge boost. So I would say, Mark, that historically we have been perceived as pretty pretty far behind other international norms when it comes to animals. We think of ourselves as a kind and compassionate country, but that's not reflected in our laws. And people don't always appreciate that because we assume that because we're a nice country and we're nice people, we should have laws that match that. But the reality is that until this bill passed, Canada hadn't passed any serious new animal protection legislation since the 1800s. That's pretty shocking to most people. So what this bill does is it eliminates the practice of bringing any more new whales or dolphins into captivity, and it's designed to phase out the, the practice of, of doing so. Uh, the whales or dolphins who are already in tanks at Marine Land in the Vancouver Aquarium are allowed to remain there. And the reason for that is not because the government or politicians think that's a good thing. It's simply because of a logistical problem, which is that there's not really anywhere else for them to go right now. Uh, there aren't, to date, any marine sanctuaries for these animals. But uh, we're hoping that's going to change because there is a wonderful organization called the Whale Sanctuary Project. And they're investigating sites on the East Coast uh, in Nova Scotia and the West Coast on Vancouver Island and, and in Washington State, where they can start some of the world's first uh, sanctuaries for cetaceans so that they can be retired to a more natural environment. I love what the Sanctuary Project is doing. I've been talking to them a lot, and I keep hoping the sanctuary is going to end up on the West Coast, but not holding my breath on that one. <laughs> well, apparently the Nova Scotia government has been very supportive of having one in Nova Scotia, so that's been really positive. But, uh, you know, the thing is, you might still get lucky in BC, because I think that there will probably be room for more than one. Um, it's obviously better for orcas to be on the West Coast and, and potentially better for belugas and dolphins uh, to be on the East. So maybe we'll see a couple sanctuaries in Canada. Well, I feel like we owe them. One question, I mean, we do owe them. Uh, my my friend Jason Colby, who uh, wrote a book about orcas, the, the birth of the captivity industry, basically talked about the moral debt that we owe these orcas. Oh, that's that's a really important concept. I think that's dead on. And in fact, I would say that Marineland and the Vancouver Aquarium, they have a moral obligation to fund these sanctuaries. They should be making reparations for all of the animals who suffered and died in their tanks because they thought it was okay to display them for entertainment. What's so bizarre, knowing the history of captivity in the aquarium, when the Vancouver Aquarium first started taking orcas, the director of the Vancouver Aquarium, Murray Newman, wanted an offshore sea pen. That's where he thought that orcas should be kept and basically kept losing that fight because no one wanted orcas in their backyard because his theory was that they should have as much space as possible. So he was looking at off uh, West Vancouver and places like that. And we're just like, no, we don't want tourist attractions. So it's wild looking at the history and going, they knew that then they knew that in the sixties and seventies that this was wow. that even when they were, tr when they were trying to display them, they knew that was the, not the right way to display them. Which was that? Wow, wow, that's that's a super interesting bit of history I didn't know. But yeah, things are kind of coming full circle because now we're trying to make up for all the years of damage that have been done by these aquariums by creating such sanctuaries. Now, the only thing that I found myself wondering about with the bill, and I think this is covered, when the rescue attempt happened last year for Scarlet, and I don't really think it was as much of a rescue attempt as it was presented as. But when that took place in the West Coast, I know there was massive opposition to any treatment 
of Scarlet and the outside of the wild. And I'm going, you can't really follow orcas for very long. And we're dealing with a population with not that many viable females left and not that many young orcas left. Does this allow for treatment, if necessary, of injured animals? It does. It does. And that was a really important exemption to the general prohibition that was built into the legislation for exactly the reason that you mentioned is because everyone understands that, of course, we've got this obligation to animals as a society to, to try to help them if we can. And if uh, it's necessary to do legitimate rescue or rehabilitation work, then the government can allow that to occur. And uh, I, I think it's important the way it's crafted. It says rescue and rehabilitation. It, 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 it's strong enough, I think, that the provision won't be abused by aquariums who want to restock animals to hold them in tanks for entertainment. Where are we going? Swimming! That's great to hear. I've also got to ask you about the shark fitting bill, which sounded like it was not going to pass, which would have been just heartbreaking. I can't believe the trials that one went through as well. Can you talk about the shark fitting bill and what that means for Canada and for sharks? Yeah, absolutely. So so this, once again, it was a, a massive battle to get it passed and it looked like it was going to run out of time. So everyone was very concerned about that. But uh, the shark fin fight in Canada has been a very long saga. People have been working towards the shark fin prohibition in some form for almost a decade. Uh, the first campaign I was involved in was in Toronto City Council in 2011 when they voted to ban shark fins. Um, that ban was eventually overturned by a court and advocates took the fight to the federal government uh, under the recognition that it's really important to shut off the supply of shark fin at its source to make sure that none comes into the country. So that was uh, the focus for a number of years. That A bill in 2013 put forward by Finn Donnelly, who I, I know you know well, and has just been a tremendous advocate for marine mammals and other sea life in particular while he was in Parliament. Uh, Finn's bill failed by a heartbreaking six votes in 2013. So it came so close, but not quite close enough. And when uh, we had the last election, Parliament changed, there was a lot of hope that this issue would come up again. And luckily it did. A conservative senator named Michael McDonald put the for bill forward. Uh, Finn was again the sponsor in the House. And there was a lot of support for it, but it was just running out of time because it too had been delayed in the Senate by the conservative senators I mentioned. They actually delayed one of their own senator's bills. So in the end, it was um, a, a huge win that the government took the provisions in that private member's bill and they incorporated it into Bill C-68, which was another fisheries bill. So they put the shark fin ban into C-68, and that all passed because it was government legislation. So uh, they do deserve huge kudos for recognizing that and taking that step. Now, can you talk about what the shark finning ban does and what it means? Yeah, so the, the bill shuts off shark fin import and export into Canada and out of Canada, which is tremendously positive because if shark fin products can't come into the country, then they can't be sold uh, as easily. So the, the bill doesn't ban the sale of shark fin products or the possession of them, but it makes it impossible for it to go into the country legally. So we do still have to be vigilant about the black market and about smuggling. Um, I've already heard whispers that there are going to be some attempts to engage in that type of thing. So I do hope that border officials will be vigilant about that. But it's a really great move for sharks because Canada is actually the largest importer of shark fin outside of Asia, which is very surprising to a lot of people. 
And we're now the first country in the world, it seems, to have taken the step to ban shark fins. So I'm hopeful that um, what that will do is is uh, push our government to be active on the world stage and have other countries uh, jump on the bandwagon and do the same. Can you just talk about the importance of this law globally? Because I know that we it, it's wonderful to me that we've gone from trailing the world on some of these things to leading the world on this. Oh, it, it's tremendous for me too. It's it's always been, I think, a source of international embarrassment for Canada. Despite our identity as a really compassionate, kind country that cares about the people in it, uh, we haven't been too great for animals. And I think that now that we've passed this bill, the whale bill, some other measures of the past, we should legitimately say on the international stage that we're trying to do better and we're hoping that other countries will try to do the same. So I hope that's going to push us to to try to play, I think, a role that Canada has played really successfully in the past, which is trying to be an honest broker on the world stage and getting other countries to do what they can too and lead the way by inspiring others. So it could be a really positive move for shark fin uh, against the shark fin industry internationally if our government's willing to do that. Well, it seems so important with this one was having this happen really in memory of Rob Stewart as well. Oh, that's another beautiful aspect of this. I mean, it's heartbreaking, of course, that Rob Stewart wasn't around to see this legislation passed, having died uh, about two years ago, tragically, in a diving accident while making the follow-up to his smash hit Sharkwater. But there's little doubt in my mind that none of this would have happened. We never would have come this far, and people never would have known about the industry if not for Rob Stewart's Sharkwater film in the first place. I mean, I don't know about you, but that was definitely the first time that I was exposed to the idea that shark finning existed. And I think it's what mobilized a lot of people to take action. Uh, Rob Stewart was there throughout a lot of the, the work in Toronto to ban shark fins. And I just know that if he was here to see this, he would be so proud. His parents were actually uh, there the day that the, the, bin, the, the bill finally passed in Parliament. And I, I'm sure it must have been just a tremendous moment for them. Oh, for me, Sharkwater wasn't just when I found it about finning. It changed my view of sharks. And I think it changed most of the world's view of sharks, which is a phenomenal accomplishment. I think you're right. I think you're right. People from, this is anecdotal, but my sense is that people are much less fearful and terrified of sharks when they go to the beach than they ever were before. Obviously, the the whole idea that sharks are terrifying and humans need to fear them was uh, just something that sort of grew out of of, uh, the, oh my gosh, how am I forgetting the name of the film right now? Jaws. Jaws, thank you. <laughs> Can't believe I forgot that. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Jaws was obviously a sensational Hollywood film, but it planted a seed in people's minds that took a very long time to disabuse, and it's still in the midst of going away. But no one has done more to change those perceptions of sharks and expose people to what beautiful, uh, sensitive, gentle creatures they truly are. No one has done more than Rob Stewart. Yeah, I thought Sharkwater was the anti-Jaws and really... You know, you look at that, it's just one of the most influential documentaries ever. I, I think that's right. I mean, the fact that it spurred this global movement against shark fin with so many organizations taking up the torch and, and working on it, uh, even after Rob Stewart is tragically gone, I think really speaks to what he inspired in people. Very cool. I'm, I'm so glad. When I spoke with Finn just a few months ago, he was pretty close to despair on where the bill had gone. It just seemed like, again... There was a real effort to stall it. I don't understand why. Was there a particular senator? Was there a particular MP? Was there a particular lobby group that was trying to stop this from happening? 
You know, not to my knowledge. Uh, it didn't seem like there was any sort of strong mounted opposition. It was a much different situation from what I can tell. And obviously we don't know about everything that went on behind the scenes. But in Toronto, uh, back in 2011, there were many people there who were lobbying against the shark fin uh, ban. Uh, there were restaurant owners and associations of restaurant groups saying, you know, you can't do this. It will be bad for our business. But I didn't see any of that at the federal level this time around. It's possible that those folks just assumed that the bill would run at a time. Um, I think it was the, the delay was on account, first of all, of the Senate and Senator Don Platt delaying all the animal bills to try to delay the, the whale bill particularly. And I think the other factor was the, that sometimes Parliament just moves slowly. There are other priorities. You sometimes really do need some champions behind bills to, to really, really push them. And if that doesn't always happen, then sometimes progress isn't as quick as it needs to be. So I know Finn was doing everything he could, but sometimes that's not quite enough. But we really have to give some credit to the, the government here. They saw that the situation was getting pretty desperate for a shark, and they were convinced by some great organizations, and I won't tra- take credit for this, but our friends at Oceana Canada and Humane Society International Canada, I know they both played a huge role in um, helping convince the government to include the shark fin ban in Bill C-68. So Bill C-68, great ocean habitat protection legislation. It was a really natural fit to include shark fin protections in there too. And it was just tremendous that it all worked out and it was able to happen. Can you talk about what else happened with Bill C-68? What are the other laws that were passed? What are the other changes that you think are, are really positive? It's not something I worked on directly, so I'm not as familiar with it as I am with other legislation, but Bill C-68 does some really important things for preserving fish habitat. And, you know, it's funny, when the bill passed, the the headline was all about the shark fin effort, which is great. Uh, But the story that was less obvious and sometimes missed by some outlets was what it did for fish. So it protects certain marine habitats, and it's designed to have areas that are protected, I believe, where fishes can flourish. Uh, This is good not just for certain species of fish, but it's good for the entire ecosystem and the rest of the food chain, not including humans, but the the food chain of animals in the ocean who depend on eating fish and depend on having strong habitat and protected habitat to live in. I know that one of the other laws that passed or bills that, that that's now a law was around bestiality. And I feel like the first thing I want to ask is, please tell me this isn't a huge issue in Canada. I saw that and went, oh God, is there a problem we don't know about? Uh, oh, I wish I could say that it's not, but the reality is that it's it's happening in Canada very much underground. The problem, Mark, is that animals as victims of crime, they can't report abuse themselves. They can't speak up for themselves if, if there's no one around to listen. And they're often um, isolated and kept behind closed doors by abusers. And it's very, very difficult for anyone to know or detect what's going on. So we know that there's online forums where people train animals uh, occasionally evidence comes to light. It's usually photos or videos that allow uh, prosecutors and the police to take action against people. That's typically the only time that someone's caught for an offense like this. So unfortunately, it is an underground problem. And a few years ago, the Supreme Court identified a loophole in our bestiality laws. Everyone thought that all forms of sexual abuse of animals were illegal. Um, But it turns out that because our laws are so outdated and haven't been updated in so long until now, it turns out that uh, most sexual abuse of animals was not illegal. So we're, we're pleased that the government moves forward to address this and close the loophole. I'm a little bit less pleased that this is all they did 
because frankly, our criminal animal cruelty laws need a complete overhaul. This was a very minor part of the problem. And uh, I do hope that uh, after the next election, whoever is in power will see more progress. I saw you do an interview about this with somebody on CPAC, and he looked like he wanted to vanish during the middle of the interview as you were explaining this. (laughs) I know, I know. It's such a horrible topic to have to discuss. I unfortunately have been talking about this issue for about four years now. Uh, We intervened, animal justice intervened in the Supreme Court case that I mentioned. And so this issue has been on our radar for for over four years at this point. And it's it's not something that anybody likes talking about. I am hopeful that now that this issue has passed, the legislation is finalized, that we'll finally be able to move on to other things. Now, was this legislation that dealt with animal fighting as well? That's right. It was Bill C-84. So it did two things. It tackled the bestiality loophole and it tightened up the animal fighting offenses. So animal fighting was already an offense, but there were some other issues that weren't covered. Like um, it was difficult to prosecute people who were at animal fighting events if they were not clearly forcing animals to fight themselves. So spectators and people who were placing bets. So the legislation makes it an offense to to participate in an animal fighting event, uh, including doing so online, which is where a lot of this is now uh, being streamed on uh, onto the internet. So it it tightens up those issues and it makes it easier to detect and prosecute. Fantastic. One of the things that I wanted to ask about was the Species at Risk Act and how it applies or how how it is applied. Because again, the, you know, all of this for me started out of my fascination with orcas and I find it fascinating and horrifying that the Species at Risk Act seems to only apply if there isn't also a pipeline at risk. So can you <laughs> can you explain why the government gets to choose to ignore that? Because that's basically what what the ruling said was, yeah, yeah, the Species at Risk Act, yes, we're putting them further at risk. But too bad, this is in the national interest. Who gets to decide when the act is enforced and when it isn't? Well, that's what's really disturbing to me as well, Mark. And I I won't pretend to be an expert in the endangered species law. Um, That's something I know a lot of folks at EcoJustice have worked very extensively on, including filing great cases that that ended up participating in the overturning of the original approval process. Um, But, you know, what I think the problem is, is that governments, seem to think these days that their role is there to protect businesses. Their role is there to protect industries. And if some other aspect of our laws, including endangered species laws, is inconvenient to that end, they're happy just to disregard it. They're happy for a court to have to come along and first for for NGOs like EcoJustice to have to take them to court and spend all of their money and resources doing that. Um, The governments are happy for the courts to have to make the decision instead of them. But I think it's a real unfortunate turn and 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 not something that we haven't seen before it's um you know pretty pretty well established that governments are going to act in the the interest of business is more than often than not uh, i perceive i can tell you that anytime there's being work done to pass an animal protection law the industries always show up and say hey if you do this it will affect our business it will affect our profits and i think the answer to that is well that's too bad you're not the only values that the government has to consider here we have to consider the well-being of the planet. We have to consider the well-being of orcas. We have to consider the well-being of individual animals, like the ones kept at Marineland in the Vancouver Aquarium. 
So, uh, you know, when, when the government disregards the law, that's why it's so important to have legal organizations and other nonprofits step in and go to court and force them to obey it. The Walk the Plank Challenge. Our contestants will be standing on planks, and every trivia question they get wrong, the planks will be shrinking. Let's meet our contestants. When I've been trying to get a handle on why nations don't pass laws around animal rights, it always seems to come back to some variation of slippery slope argument. Can you explain that? Because when I asked Lori Moreno, who's, who runs the Sanctuary Project, what the fight was in some areas around cetacean rights, she said, basically, people don't want to lose their, their McNuggets. They're afraid that if we admit that there are species that are very, very, very intelligent, that it will basically lead to more rights for more animals, and courts don't want to go near that. Oh, the slippery edge of the, of the slope is always the arguing we hear when trying to do anything for animal protection. Uh, you know, let me give you an example. In the very last hour of debate on Bill S-203 to outlaw whale and dolphin captivity, I was in the House of Commons gallery watching, and the Conservative MP from Alberta stood up and said that if the whale and dolphin bill goes through, well, you've got to look at the company that the bill's supporters are keeping. And he singled out animal justice and said that animal justice and some SPCAs, they want to enter rodeos, they, want, they promote vegetarianism, doing all these things that have nothing to do with whales and dolphins. So it's, it's fear-mongering. Uh, they're trying to say to, to people and to the public that if this happens today, if whales and dolphins get freed from tanks today, uh, chickens are going to be freed tomorrow and you won't get your McNuggets. And I actually don't think that the public buys that. I think people are smart enough to know that a bill about whales is a bill about whales. And the way the law works, I think most people understand this, too, is that the laws are a reflection of what our society wants and what people's attitudes are um, about animals or about any other issue that the law might touch on. So I, I actually think it's just irresponsible fear-mongering to suggest that, say, chicken farming is going to end tomorrow because a law is passed about whales and dolphins. Uh, if the public wants chicken farming to end, that's when it will end. And to get to that point, there has to be a lot more advocacy and a lot more um, effort to make a business case for moving to another model. And, and many, many, many things need to happen before society might ever be ready to get to that point. That's not an argument in favor of denying protections to whales and dolphins when everyone agrees that they deserve them. Because I didn't come at whale world with a scientific background, when I started researching some of this, I was trying to figure out why scientifically orcas didn't have rights. Right? I thought there's got to be a scientific reason. What's what's the, what's the logic that you know that says humans deserve rights and orcas don't? Because you come up with a list of things that only humans do, and we keep proving it's not true. Right? The only humans use tools. No, freaking crows use tools. Orcas, you you know, whales use bubble nets. Right? You can go through the animal kingdom and do that. Only humans have empathy. No, we've, we've broken that one down too. So I've wondered about personhood as the way to protect species like orcas. Is that something that you explored all? It, what are your thoughts on personhood for certain animals that clearly are much, much more intelligent than it's convenient to admit? Well, I, I think you're right that anytime we try to distinguish humans between other animals and say, well, we're special because of X, you're totally right. We learned that animals can do X as well. Uh, I think that the scientific case for 
for recognizing that, that there's so much more like us than not like us is very, very strong. And it becomes stronger every single year. Every single day, we learn more about their abilities, their intelligence, their capacities, their feelings, their empathy, their sentience. They're, they're incredible, just like humans are. So denying them rights on the basis that they're not like us is, uh, frankly, just losing steam as an argument, I think. There has been some work to start looking at personhood for whales and dolphins. And, uh, you know, the work I would to the point to that people should check out if they want to learn more about this is the work of the non-human rights project in the United States. So they're a civil rights organization for animals and they're working to have some animals declared persons and they're working on a scientific basis. So they're looking at species of animals and they're saying, okay, what do we know about whales, uh, orcas in particular, or dolphins? Uh, What do we know about chimpanzees? What do we know about elephants? Do we know enough to say that the reasons that we grant humans' rights should apply to them as well? So they look back at what courts decide are relevant when deciding if humans should have rights, and they're applying that model to animals. So far, they brought cases on behalf of chimpanzees in New York State, elephants and um, uh, elephants in Connecticut and New York State as well, and I believe they're looking at other animals to file on behalf of soon. The courts have not accepted their claims outright so far, but there have been a lot of judges who've had really positive words to say about this approach. And a lot of judges who said that they aren't really comfortable with the way that animals are treated and the way the law makes these arbitrary distinctions between humans and animals. So I think that they've done tremendous work to get the courts used to this idea and get the public used to it as well. And uh, any listeners who want to learn more about this, there's an amazing film produced about them by some stunning filmmakers. It's called Unlocking the Cage. And uh, you can watch that film and learn all about their fight. Well, it's been interesting because I've I've spoken to people involved with that. And the focus is completely on captivity. And my response is immediately, what about the wild orcas? What about wild apes? And I understand why you've got to focus the law on the individuals. Because it's fascinating to go, all right, you've got... Coco the gorilla, who has a larger vocabulary than what some high, fairly decent grade of elementary school, and clearly comprehension beyond that. And you're going, oh no, that gorilla doesn't have rights, really? You know, you found that creature on another planet, you would absolutely go, wow, we found intelligent life. If we saw orcas in the wild on another planet, if we went, this new species has arrived on Earth we would be blown away by the level of intelligence and go, wow, we've, we've found something new. we found something we don't understand. But it's not where courts want to go. Welcome. Please stay within your comfort zone. Well, that's, that's an interesting comparison. What that speaks to, to me, is just sort of the structure that we've built up over centuries of our domination and abuse of animals and just treating them like they're inferior to us and like we own them and that they're our property. I think the point you make, you know, if aliens came along or we went to another planet and saw something like what we have now, uh, I don't think that we would invent the current system that we have if it didn't already exist. Like we wouldn't start from scratch today knowing what we know about animals and say that uh, we think it's totally proper for humans to be in control and and, uh, run everything on this planet. I think that we'd probably be a lot more respectful. But now, because society has existed for so long, there's all these economic incentives to exploit and abuse animals and and treat them as less important than humans and the industries that we profit from. So I hope that that will slowly be chipped away at, including by courts. But you've got to 
people always have to keep in mind, I guess, to your point about how far courts are willing to go, is that courts are political decision makers, too. They're only ever willing to push the law as far as they think that society is ready to see it. And that's why the common law is kind of a beautiful thing in a way, is because it does evolve along with people's attitudes. So I think that given where people's attitudes are now about animals and how much we've started to recognize that they're just like us in all the way that that matter. Uh, I do think it's only a matter of time before we start to see some more favorable rulings out of courts on this issue. It's just when I started looking into this, I was sure somebody would give me a strong scientific or philosophical basis for denying rights. And basically the answer I kept coming back to was it's inconvenient. Yeah. I mean, that's really the only, uh, the, the only response. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a legitimate response, but it's, it's the response. It's in our our convenience and uh, the economic interests of many humans to keep animals in the position that they are right now and not elevate them to some other sort of status that, that has rights. There's no moral argument for it. There's no scientific argument. Uh, there, there really is only an economic argument. And I don't think that's good enough to deny an entire class of billions and, and trillions of, of beings uh, basic fundamental rights and freedoms, like living in appropriate social groups, like having access to fresh air and, and water and, and light, um, like not being confined in tiny cages or tanks. Out of the egg came a tiny and very hungry caterpillar. He started to look for some food. Now, there's another case you're involved with that the, the, the implications are huge. Can you talk about the ethical veganism case that you're fighting on behalf of the firefighter in BC? Oh, thanks for asking about that one. That's an, that's an interesting case. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the issue was basically that a firefighter named Adam Knopf, he lives in, in um, Kenora, Ontario. Adam was sent out to fight the forest fires in William Blake, BC, two summers ago, 2017. I'm sure people remember those forest fires. They were threatening people's property. Teams of firefighters went up there and uh, did everything that they could to save people's property. And Adam was one of them. He was a team leader. He often got sent to the province in situations like this. Adam is also somebody who's been vegan for about 20 years for ethical reasons. He doesn't think that animals should have to die just so he can eat. And he does everything he can to avoid causing them suffering in any way, including his food choices, his clothing choices, the medication that he uses, products that he buys that aren't tested on animals. It really colors every aspect of his life. So uh, when he goes on deployment, oftentimes it might take the kitchen staff a couple of days to figure out what he can eat and find appropriate food for them. He tries to be pretty forgiving of that and works with people to, uh, to find some solutions. But in William Flake, the situation just never improved. He kept being given food that he couldn't eat. Uh, sometimes he would be given vegan food, but it would be protein deficient or just a bunch of sides and a bunch of potatoes. Those are the main dish. It wasn't meeting the nutritional requirements that he needed to fight forest fires for 16 hours a day. So after nine or 10 days of this treatment, um, Adam complained pretty vigorously to his supervisors into the kitchen, and he got sent home as punishment for trying to assert his rights. And the reason I say that he has rights is that in Ontario, uh, protections for vegans are likely a thing under our human rights legislation. Our human rights laws say that people have the right to not be discriminated against based on their creed. And creed is something that doesn't mean just religion. Uh, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which is a policy-making body, they say that it should mean secular beliefs too. So 
What we're hoping to see at the Human Rights Tribunal is uh, a decision where Adam is recognized as somebody who has beliefs that are protected under our human rights laws. I've I lived in Williams Lake for a while and I thought, yep, I can actually see that being the place where this happens. Uh, oh. It would be a proudly carnivorous town for the most part. Well, you know what's interesting is the town was pretty much evacuated. There was almost nobody there and no restaurants open. It was the police, I think, were running a Tim Hortons location, and that was the only restaurant in town. So some days he was able to get dry bagels and coffee from Tim's, uh, but otherwise they were bringing in food. They, they have professional services that go out in situations like this because it, it's pretty standard, of course, that they're in the bush and people need to be fed. But for whatever reason, this time around, they just weren't able to get their act together and refused to accommodate Adam. So... You know, it was a tragic situation, but one that I hope at least will will be a good ruling and help protect other people in the same situation. Well, reading about this case, it felt less like we're unable to and more like chose not to. Like the meal he got with one bean in it. Oh, yeah. I know. It's terrible. The bean, uh, he had a black bean, which is placed on one of his meals as sort of a form of garnish. But the, there was no other source of protein in the meal, apparently. Um, at, at one point, he did manage to procure a couple blocks of tofu through some process, uh, but then the tofu never showed up in any of his meals. So he, another day, they did have some veggie burgers or veggie dogs for him, but uh, the cook handled a bunch of raw meat and then with the same gloves touched the veggie dogs and veggie, veggie burgers. So it just, it, they just never got it right. You know, you can be forgiving to people of some extent in a difficult situation, but after 10 days, uh, in a situation that, you know, they already recognize they've got a duty to accommodate people who might have kosher or halal dietary needs. So their refusal to do so for him was just astounding. Presumably every cook out there knows how to deal with a food allergy. So this one didn't feel like a brain surgery ask. So that's that's why looking at it actually felt, you know, and I you probably can't comment on this, but when I was reading this, I thought, no, that was some cook trying to make a point. Uh, was what it felt like. It felt more like them saying, no, 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 we're, we're not in on this vegan thing. Well, interesting you say that because in, in Adam's court filings, he, he does state that his supervisor, after he was sent home, his supervisor or some, some higher-up person drove him to an airport several hours away, and that person told him that he would bend over backwards for an allergy, but for a dietary preference, which is how we characterize the vegan diet, he said he wouldn't do anything for that. So I do think that that attitude still exists, and it's, it's totally one that's not right. The caterpillar ate through one nice green leaf, and after that, he felt much better. Now, he wasn't hungry anymore. Wow. Can you talk about other big battles out there right now for you? What are, what are some of the other fights people should know about that you're dealing with? Well, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I, I hope to start speaking with more people about this as well, is uh, an idea for some new federal legislation that I think we really need. So I've, I've spoken a little bit already on this podcast about why uh, animal laws in Canada are so outdated at the federal level. One thing that we don't have is a National Animal Welfare or Animal Protection Act. Um, most other G7 countries do have this. It's pretty standard around the world that we would have something like this. And Canada just doesn't. So what ends up happening is every time there's a proposal to include new animal protection uh, legislation at the federal level, you've got to find some other law to put it into. And there's always this complaint from, um, you know, bureaucrats and civil servants. They say, well, you know, we're not opposed to 
banning whale and dolphin exports, but you can't do it through this existing legislation about endangered species. Do it somewhere else because then it ruins the purpose of that legislation. And there's just never been a really good home for all the animal protection measures that we now are starting to see support for and starting to see passed. So I think it's really important that the federal government take strong action to bring in such a piece of legislation and finally move us out of this backward status where we've got some of the worst laws in the world. We're, we're making progress now, and that momentum really needs to keep going. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of language when you're dealing with these issues? Like on your site, I, ref- I saw you referring to the seal kill, not the seal hunt, which I think was the first time I'd seen that phrasing. Are there other phrases like that, or are there other areas where you're trying to adjust the language to adjust the attitudes? an interesting question. Yeah, I think in general that as advocates for animals, we all need to be really vigilant about not using the language that the industries want to use. So I'll tell you one of my pet peeves, and it's a word that we hear all the time when when people talk about killing animals for profit. They use the word harvest. So fur harvesting, that's a euphemism for, for hunting or for trapping. Uh, The seal harvest is another word that people use to describe what I would say is a seal kill or a seal slaughter on Canada's east coast to the commercial sealing industry. Um, Harvest is always used. And Mark, to me, I don't know what you think, but to me, the word harvest means like harvesting a crop of potatoes or harvesting a crop of apples. It's not like animals are just sitting there waiting for someone to painlessly pluck them out of the woods or out of the ocean so that they die some sort of humane natural death. Uh, what happens to animals is is vicious. It's it's slaughter. Um, it's killing. It's it's gruesome, and it's certainly not a pretty process. So I always think we need to be vigilant, but just making sure that we get that language right and making sure we use the right words. Uh, another one that a friend of mine, Taylor Zavitz, actually she's she's a PhD candidate at University of Victoria, and she's studying critical animal studies and, and does a lot of work on animal agency. It's largely through a lot of writing that she's done that I've come to avoid using the word voiceless to describe animals. A lot of people say that we need to protect animals because they're voiceless and we need to speak for them. And I think that's a mistake, too. I, I think it's really clear that animals do have voices and they use them. They use them to tell us that they don't like what they're doing to us. Every time, time we see a, a calf escape a slaughter truck, um, every time we see uh, a coyote gnaw or try to gnaw his or her paw off to escape a leg hole trap, when they yowl and they, they scream when they're being sent to slaughter, they're telling us that they don't like what we're doing to them. So I think it's important to grant them that agency and recognize that they have voices. We just ignore it and silence those voices. I remember writing about trapping wow, just out of high school and discovering the term harvest and being completely shocked by it. It's ridiculous. There's even some provinces that in their statutes, they uh, use the word fur harvesting regulations to describe the laws as if it's some sort of picking of apples in the fall. It's, it's really offensive in my view. You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Can you talk about how you became involved in animal rights issues? Like, where does your passion come from? Was there a moment as a kid that you went, this is wrong? How did this start for you? Well, interesting question, especially because we were just talking about the, the seal slaughter. Um, I was always uh, a big animal person when I was a kid. I had cats, we had hamsters, rabbits, ducks. I knew from a very early age that they were just like us in all the ways that mattered. But it hadn't occurred to me when I was, you know, eight or nine that anyone would be mean to an animal. I just 
it, it just wasn't a thought that as a child I had ever entertained. But when I was about nine years old, I remember being at the neighbor's house and watching, I think, something on CBC. Maybe it was the news. And there were images of, of seals, baby seals being clubbed on TV. And I couldn't believe that this was happening. And not just happening, but I grew up in PEI, Prince Edward Island. And so it was happening in my own backyard, very near to where I lived. And that was one of the first times I remember just understanding that not everyone was nice to animals all the time. It took me a few more years, but again, it was something on TV. It was a, a documentary I saw that um, convinced me to give up meat for good when I was about 12 years old. And I'm lucky that my mom went vegetarian with me because it made it a lot easier. When I was in my early 20s, I started thinking about what I wanted to do as a career. I'd been working for Green Party leader Elizabeth May as her press secretary for a number of years. And I started thinking about how she used her law degree. She's a former environmental lawyer. And how maybe I could try to do the same thing, but do it for animal rights and, and try to protect animals using the law, too. It was uh, around that time that things kind of came full circle for me. And I ended up going out to the seal hunt, seal slaughter, off the coast of PEI for the first time in, in uh, 2007 with Humane Society International. And that was the first time I realized that people actually had careers. They did this full time for a living. They fought for animals and made progress and did incredible things for them. So I decided at that point to pack up and go off to law school and become an animal rights lawyer. Very cool. Could you talk about the movie that that inspired you? I'm always fascinated by books and movies that change people's worlds. Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I could remember more about it. I actually think that the film that I saw I don't think it even had anything to do with eating animals. I think it was more about animals being bears in particular, being killed in China. Uh, and I don't know why it was that for me that just drove home that all animals suffer and that the, 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 the cow on my plate was no different from the cat at my foot or the, the bear on TV. But for whatever reason, it just opened my eyes and made it clear to me that I had to stop participating in that system. I've met so many people who became vegetarians because they saw the movie Babe, right? Like, it's amazing what, you know, and we talked about this with Sharkwater. It's amazing what the right movie can do to change attitudes and minds. Away to me, pig. Oh, you're you're so right. I think about this a lot. And sometimes I think I should have gone into the film industry instead of being a lawyer. But I guess it, it takes everyone to make social change uh, because it's true. Blackfish, The Cove, Sharkwater... Uh, the film Earthlings, these are all really powerful documentaries that expose new ideas to people and, and not just to the people who are already predisposed to care about animals, but most of these films went mainstream. Um, a lot of them were, were on the major networks or in movie theaters. And I think the power of media, film in particular, and TV to push people farther along the path toward compassion is just undeniable and something really powerful that we need to make use of. Now, what makes you hopeful? Oh, a lot of things, a lot of things. I don't think you can do this work if you're not to some extent an optimist because there's a lot of unhopeful elements to it and a lot of horrible stuff that one learns. But I'm really inspired, Mark, by what happened last month in Ottawa. We saw these three amazing pieces of legislation pass. Uh, there was one other bill that didn't pass. That was a bill to end cosmetic testing on animals. But it, it ran out of time, but it did have support from all the parties. So I'm hopeful that'll come in the future. But not to downplay the significance of these three bills, they, it was the first time that we've seen any serious new animal protection legislation passed since the 1800s. And so that makes me really hopeful. And the reason that the legislation was able to pass 
it's not just because a few organizations supported it or because there were some good MPs in there or good senators. It's because Canadians rose up en masse and thousands of people took action to call on the prime minister, call on cabinet, call on MPs and party leadership to support this legislation. So I think what we're seeing is Canadians really demonstrating to politicians that we need to do better. It's an end to the era of uh, Canada sitting on its hands and doing nothing for animals, and it's time to shape up. So I'm really optimistic that that momentum is going to keep going. Now, you worked for Elizabeth May and you ran in, was it the last election? So are you looking at being one of the politicians again? No, no. My days of partisan politics are over. I'm I'm uh, what I'm what I'm really enjoying doing these days is working with and supporting members of all parties who are supportive of animal protection. I think it's important that strategically the animal protection movement uh, cultivates relationships with all MPs. Um, everyone has some compassion within them, and we need to build bridges in all the parties and make sure that they all understand that this is an issue that people vote on. It's something that's important, and that animals should be part of our moral community. So. I'm really focused on um, just being nonpartisan and and, and uh, just making sure that all MPs are inspired to take action for animals. If your goals could be accomplished, what would the world look like? Well, I think uh, what I would like to see, I mean, an end to animal abuse and suffering would be would be the end goal. But um, what I would like to see in the short term is to see our laws start to catch up with our values. I think that uh, Canadians care a lot about animals. We're compassionate people. And we just assume that the laws are okay for animals because we'd like to think that our government does its job of taking care of vulnerable people in society. And when people are learning that that's not the case, they're, they're taking action. So I think what we need to focus on is making sure our laws catch up to where we are as a society and that we start uh, moving in the right direction. Fantastic. And what can we ask people to do? Well, I, I think that the upcoming election is a great time to get engaged, find local animal-friendly candidates to support I really encourage people to volunteer on campaigns and, and show members of parliament that there is support to be had if, if they take strong positions on animal protection. They can get volunteers, they can get donations, they can get more support. So I would encourage everyone to get politically active, go to debates, ask questions about animal protection to your candidates, and show them that this issue isn't going away. Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this, and thank you so much for everything that you do. Well, it was a real pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me, and thanks for everything you do with this podcast and, and elsewhere. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please spread the word. Join us on Facebook or Twitter, subscribe to our newsletter, sign up for our Medium magazine, our YouTube channel, and get cool bonus material, including tips on how you can make waves. And if you'd like to help us make more of these podcasts more often, because I'd do these every night if I could, join our pod at patreon.com. We've updated our membership tiers with newer and cooler special offers for all our Patreon producers. And don't forget, you can also help us out with our Giving Tuesday campaign. And please, whatever you do, don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss upcoming episodes with Peter Voliban, author of The Inner Life of Animals, singer and activist Takaya Blaney, iconic artist Robert Bateman, and ORCA author, Eric Hoyt. Scanna is produced by the always awesome and iconic Rain Banu with epic audio assist from Spencer Pickles. If you like the show, I'm Mark Laren Young, and thanks again for checking out Scanna. If this wasn't for you, thanks for listening to Dolly Parton's America. And now, to end off, 
Canada just lost a musical legend, the essential John Mann. To me, BC's iconic band was Spirit of the West. I saw them so many times over the years, and I was lucky enough to catch one of their final shows at Butchart Gardens near Victoria. Just over two years ago, close to 50 of Canada's musical stars gathered at the legendary Commodore Ballroom to help raise funds for John's family as he struggled with early-onset Alzheimer's. That was November 19th. 2017. John died almost exactly two years later, November 20th, 2019, and even the planet cried because Venice sunk. For John's family, for Jill, and for memories, this is the all-star version of Home for a Rest. So 
called Vacations will soon be my death. I'm so sick from the drink. I need home for a rest. Vacations will soon be my death I'm so sick from the drink I need home for a rest 